author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hi, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. It's my great pleasure to introduce this man. Gary Burr is a master songwriter, a singer, guitarist, recording artist. He's also a performer. I've had the pleasure to be in attendance when he's performing. But Gary Burr's songs have found their way into the heart and mind of many other singers. It's a very diverse list of recording artists who have interpreted his songs. Neil Diamond, Ringo Starr, Don Williams, Garth Brooks, Janice Ian, Joe Cocker, many modern country artists. Gary Burr, it's an honor to talk with you. Well, I'm glad to talk to you. That sounds impressive when you read it off like that. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. What does it feel like to write a song? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, there's a famous Dorothy Parker quote. You know, I hate writing, but I love having written. <laughs> and I kind of ascribe to that. By the end of the day, it's kind of like a battle that you, or a boxing match that you're, you know, you're just climbing out of the ring with a certain satisfaction that you're able to leave the ring alive. And you know if you've, you know, at the end of the of the session, if you've hit one or whether you've just sort of sparred for four hours. You know, you know if you've won a title or whether you've just sparred for four hours. Hmm. But it's it it's an amazing thing when you write something that then goes on to have a life and you think about that moment when it was just a blank piece of paper and you know the people in the room or even if it's just me sitting there going what do I want to say and then it goes miraculously from what do we want to say or what do I want to say to somebody walking up to you and go wow that when I hear that song on the radio it affects me like this that's an amazing thing to to get to be proud of hmm wow I'm hoping you can paint a little picture for us of your early days was there any indication that you'd be a musician? I had a great grandfather that played piano in a silent movie house. And I was passed down this booklet of his songs and nobody in the family could ever say whether they were existing songs or whether they were songs that he wrote. Um, you know, my mom and dad were not musical. None of my brothers were terribly musical. They loved music. My mom and dad were always singing in the car and things. Right up until, you know, pop music exploded and the Beatles played Ed Sullivan and all of a sudden, all of a sudden your parents didn't have a argument when you'd say, I'd like to do this as a career because other people, other kids were doing it. I had no indication. I, I, I came from a family where my dad was an electrician and in New England, you kind of just assume that you're going to do whatever your dad did. So that's what I thought was hanging over my head. And lucky for me, the whole pop world exploded with Woodstock and the Beatles. And all of a sudden I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't going to have any of that. And I knew what I wanted to be. But before that, I just assumed I was going to be an electrician like my dad. Tell us about who your biggest influences would be. Well, obviously I had the normal, I had the normal musical influences for that time period. You know, the Beatles and the Eagles and all those bands, they all 
came up at just the right time when I was receptive and trying to, to uh, figure out what I wanted to do. You know, some of my influences were, you know, my teachers at school, I had an English teacher that, you know, for the first time sparked my love of the language. And from that point on, right before I was heading off to college, I figured I was going to be an English teacher because I loved the language and I loved every class that I took where it was, you know, playing with words and figuring that out. So I, I was suddenly thinking, oh, maybe I'll be an English teacher. And one of the biggest influences I had was I, I, I moved out with a band in California and everybody else in the band was just, you know, sleeping late, doing drugs and, and rehearsing. And I always had a work ethic. I would get up and I'd go to work and I got a job at this ice cream store. And the guy, the boss there was a guy named Sam Lieberman. And he was such a great, funny, good, kind, moral boss. And it really impressed on me a life lesson that, that you could work a job, work it hard, but still have fun and still make all the right moves at the end of the day. And he was a big influence on me. Interesting. You're touching on something I think that's really interesting. A lot of people, when they think about artists, they think about people who uh, maybe light candles for inspiration. They think they have a relaxed life, but anything you're going to pursue to be successful at, you have to be ambitious and you have to have a work ethic. Do you think a lot of people don't see that side of things? Oh, absolutely. I think that there are people that think that we just wander around and we, we happen to see a unicorn and that makes <laughs> us run home and write a song about a unicorn where the truth is, is that we have to get ourselves to the point where we every day sit down and conjure up a unicorn on command because that's what we have to do. You know, we dream, please, someday I'm going to write a song every month when I'm inspired and someday let me get a publishing deal. So you get this publishing deal, and now the publisher says, what you've been doing, I want you to do it every day at 10 o'clock, or we don't pay you. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you have to conjure that unicorn up every day at 10 o'clock. And it's a whole different, yet connected set of muscles that complement and supplement the natural talent that you have, but you have to work those muscles. Writing songs is a muscle. When I write two, three days in a row, I can write to a brick wall. You give me anything and I can write a song in three hours because it's, it's been in use. It's warmed up. You know, the, the blood is pumping through my songwriting muscle. I take, if I have to go on a trip and I don't write for a week or two weeks, I come back and it's, you know, moon, June, cat back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and people don't realize that it's a muscle that you have to work. You know, a lot of people have said this on Edison or whatever, you know, but part of it is, you know, part of it is showing up. Part of it is showing up and rolling up your sleeves. And, you know, I, I pretty much write and do something creative every day because that's what I do. I always kind of feel like I did work for my dad for a while because I was going to be an electrician. I was an electrician when I had my first hit and it saved me from being an electrician. But I was. And so I was lucky enough to have that thing that took me out of that life and gave me this life. But every day that I'm sitting around not working, I'm kind of looking up, kind of sensing my dad up there looking down going, what are you doing? Get to work. You have a job. It's a cool job, but it's still a job. Treat it like a job. 
and I mean that in the best sense of the word. I have a, my idea of, of how I work is we have fun or why are we there? I mean, if you can't have fun being an artist and, and making shit up, then, then shame on you. So that balance of having fun and rolling up your sleeves and sweating. By the end of the day, man, I'm exhausted. I've got a headache. It's draining. But you know, I'm not crawling through attics like I would have been being an electrician. Hmm. With that said, would you say that songwriting gets easier as you do it as the years go by? No. One of the blessings about being down in Nashville is you get to write with progressively younger people, and the younger people seem to have the great original ideas. The older I get, the more I start going, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm halfway through a song, and I've probably written this song a hundred times before. Or you end up just writing another song about this or another, and then you write with this young person, and they come in, and they say, here's this idea, and you go, where did that idea come from? And you scratch your head going, oh, yeah, I used to have those ideas. <laughs> so that's the good thing about the access to the co-writing pool in Nashville is you can write with those people. And I feel like that's my natural role now. They come in, they've got the great 20-year-old idea or the idea from a 20-year-old that nobody's a slant on something that no one's thought of because they're nutty at that age. And I was nutty at that age. And I'm the guy that has the tools and the years of experience that goes, oh, here's how we nail that in three minutes. And they can use it on the radio to sell tires. Hmm. What do you look for in these co-writers that you're mentioning? It's funny. From a sheer horror point of view, from a sheer businessman point of view, these days, because of the way the industry down in Nashville has become where it's a lot of, you know, every artist seems to have a clique of songwriters that they are protective of, and you can't break into that. So there's no room on their record for you. Where it used to be, hey, I'm doing a record. I've written one song. I need nine more. And that was our job songwriters like me now it's me and my buddies have written 10 songs we'll put your song on but it better be the song of the year hmm. it better be the one that becomes the song of the year so these days you try to write with one of those people in a clique that has a connection to the artist where he's sort of slumming for the day and writing with you but there's a chance that he'll bring it to his buddy and his buddy will love it and say yeah let's do this song you're at least on it or somebody that has a record deal or, you know, everything right now is about who has access. And so you try to pick the people that have the access and still judge them by, I want to write with somebody that's fun, that's fun to spend the day with and that's talented and they're all talented. So you're not really spending a day, you know, with a potted plant, you know, you're spending a day with somebody young that's got great ideas that has the energy. But if I have to, winnow them out i also one of the criteria is what kind of access have you got with me you've got access to 40 years of songwriting experience with them they better bring to the table a great fresh idea and access to somebody that can cut it and make us some dough would you say that there has been a greater purpose 
to the songs that you create? Would you say that there's like a guiding mission? Huh. I've always been ambitious, but not ambitious, not ambitious in a monetary way. I've always been ambitious. I always remember the movie, The Natural, where the, the Robert Redford character, when they asked him why he tried so hard, he always said, someday I'm going to walk down the street and some guy's going to nudge his kid and say, there's Roy Hobbs. He was the best that ever played the game. I came to town and I wanted to be the Roy Hobbs. I want to be the guy that walked down the street and somebody nudges and goes, that's one of the best that played the game. So when somebody, some, another writer once said to me, you know, every song of yours that I hear on the radio, I'm never disappointed. It's always has something, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's my overriding theme is I never want to stop trying and, and to make every part of every song I write be the best it can be because I never want anyone to go, oh, Gary Burr wrote that song. Eh, it's okay. Hmm. When you moved down to Nashville, was there any kind of, I don't know, like, what's this guy doing from Connecticut? You know, like, was there any of that? No, it was just the opposite. What was interesting was when I moved to town, I had never really heard country music. When I moved to Nashville, I had never heard a Johnny Cash album or Merle Haggard or any of those. I didn't know what they sounded like. All of my songs, I was just trying to rewrite Beatles, Birds, and Eagles songs. So I was a fresh voice on the scene where they all went, man, your songs are nutty. I haven't heard anything like it. Well, they would have if they came from where I came from because I was just ripping off the Beatles and the Eagles. But for them down here, everyone was still trying to write more traditional country music because I came down here in 89 down to national in 89. So there wasn't any kind of, I mean, obviously the old guard, the, the, the bunch of songwriters that arrived in town there around that period, the, the, the Pat Algers, the Bob DePiros, you know, the Victoria Shaw's, they all took spots away from the generation four, the Bob McDill's and the Troy Seals. And they probably looked at us going, who are these whippersnappers? The same way I look at the young writers that are out there now, the Chris DiStefano's and the Ashley Gorley's, and go, who are these young whippersnappers? And then laugh because it's a natural progression. They're supposed to take over. And they'll be pissed off when the next batch takes over from them. So there was certainly an element of that. And, you know, same way that my parents hated the Beatles and loved Frank Sinatra. And who are these kids taking airtime away from Frank Sinatra and Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> so, but I was more embraced because I was a fresh, I was what was perceived by them as a fresh new style of songwriting. You know, I still, to this day, I run into Eddie Rabbit or Eddie Raven who cut one of my songs. I cut a bunch of them. And he said, man, we would sit around and listen to your demos and go, we got to cut these songs. We don't know what the hell he's talking about, but we're going to cut these songs. <laughs> Someone you just mentioned a moment ago, I'm hoping you can tell us about writing with Victoria Shaw. She's a very interesting songwriter. Yes, she is. Why do you find it that interesting? 
I saw not too long ago that you were performing. It was a co-bill at a jazz club in New York. And I thought, I know you've written, I've listened to a couple of songs that you've written together. Victoria and I have, uh, she's not only one of my oldest collaborators, longest lasting collaborators, but the one where I've had the absolute most cuts and most success with. And she's brilliant. She was grew up in LA and then moved to New York, actually born and grew up in New York and then moved out and grew up in LA and then was bi-coastal between New York and LA and now lives in Nashville since around the time I moved there. And she's as brash don't take no shit, New York gal. And she's a genius. She really believes in the great opening line. So she'll sit there and go, I don't know, care about the idea. I don't care about anything else. We got to kill him in the opening line. What, what can we say? And that's always fun. And she's the writer that every time she says, okay, I got a line. It's really stupid. I'm going to just say it. It's really stupid. I'm sorry, but this is my stupid. Every time she says that to me, I reach and I grab the phone and I order a new car because I'm about to <laughs> make a lot of money because all of her stupidest ideas are all the lines in the song where people go, oh, I love that song about the stupid idea. And, and she's brilliant to work with, very demanding, exhausting to, to write a song with. But, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, she's just one of my, best friends I'm hoping you can take us back a little bit can you remember where you were the very first time you heard a Gary Burr song playing on the radio well I'll tell you the first song I ever heard on the radio was Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me by Juice Newton and nobody would send me what she did I I never heard it and I called the radio station and I got on the radio station to the DJ and I had to convince him that I was the guy that wrote the song and would he play the song for me over the phone. <laughs> and when I finally convinced him that I was who I was, he played the song for me over the phone. And that was the first time I heard it. And the next time I heard it, I was still an electrician and I was in the car with my partner and I was talking about the song and he said, I've never heard the song. You're telling me it's this big hit on the radio. Well, I've never heard it. And I said, well, you know what? I've never heard it on the radio either. We're sitting there in the car, in the truck, total quiet. And I said, well, I've never heard it either. And just as a joke, I said, but you know what? It's such a hit. It's probably on the radio right now. And I hit the radio button and turned it up and my song was playing. <laughs> wow. And that's the first time I heard it on the radio was just as a joke going, it's on the radio right now. That's how big of a hit I've got. And it was playing on the radio. I bet you had a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he bought lunch that day. <laughs> when we were introducing you at the top of the show, listing all of these incredible artists that have recorded your songs, Ringo Starr, you could just keep on going, but maybe a difficult question. Could you pick the artist that has done the best interpretation of a Gary Burr song? Hmm. You know what makes that tough is just the idea that as the songwriter, but who also does the demo of the song, every time you hear them do the song, it's always like a disappointment. It's always like, 
why did they sing that line like that? Why did they go up there when on my demo, I go down there. Why did they put this in? Why did they do that? So you're always, you're always complaining about what it is you're hearing. I would say one of the best versions of, of two of the songs that he recorded of mine would be Colin Ray because his voice was the closest to mine back in the day. So he sang them just like I, I envisioned. And he did a song of mine called Man of My Word and another album called Time Machine. And both of those, I was really, really pleased and proud of. I mean, literally, we've had people change. Literally, we've had people change words in songs, change lines. And we're scratching our heads going. We had, uh, Vic and I wrote a big song for Doug Stone called Too Busy Being in Love. And he said, you know, we wrote uh, a beautiful sonnet that starts with your name was one of the lines in the chorus. And he sang a beautiful song and it starts with your name. And at the number one party, we asked him, why did you sing that line? He goes, why? What's it supposed to be? So it's supposed to be sonnet. And he goes, what's a sonnet? <laughs> we said, it's like a little, it's like a little poem. And he looked at us and said, oh, I never heard of that. Am I dumb as a box of rocks or what? And that was his answer. He just didn't know what a sonnet was. So he just or he thought he thought we must have been singing song, <laughs> you know, but the check cleared. So that's OK. <laughs> One very unique song, I think, especially in the world of country music, would be One Night a Day that Garth Brooks recorded. What did you think of Garth's take on your song? I thought it was great. It was really weird for him to do that song because it sounded sort of like a cocktail song that should be played by, by uh, you know, Billy Stritch on the piano. And Garth actually learned the saxophone to play it live. And it seemed like totally out of style for him. So I give him a, a lot of credit to even, it was not like anything he was doing. So I have no explanation for that when, you know, the urban legend behind that was I wrote that with Pete Wozner, who wrote for the publishing company where Garth worked. And so he heard the demo over and over again. He always said, oh, I like that song. That's really pretty. I like that song. I like that song. And then he had a session for his album and they were waiting on the fax machine to give them a lyric for a Bob Seger song that they were going to do as the last song of the session. And the fax machine broke. So they didn't have the lyric and the producer said, all right, well, I guess we're done. And Garth said, well, we still have a little time. Why don't we cut that song that I keep hearing in the demo room that I like so much, go get a copy of that. And so they cut one night a day because they didn't get the facts for the Bob Seger song. Interesting. Yeah. I'm an afterthought. <laughs> Something that you've mentioned many times, it kept coming up in this interview is the Beatles. What, is it like to have an association with Ringo Starr? It has slowly, very slowly gotten more comfortable. In the beginning, I was terrified, you know, because he's sort of like opposite Lance. The more comfortable he is with you and the more he likes you, the more shit he gives you. <laughs> and so you think that when people start giving you shit, they're like angry at you or tired at you but it's actually a sign that, that he's comfortable enough with you. You know, I always joke and say, if he gets more comfortable with me, he's, you know, I'm going to have a heart attack from him screaming at me. It's amazing. And it's so funny how 
as writers, we get to write with these people and you have to compartmentalize. You have to be a fan when you're outside the door, jumping up and down going, I'm about to walk in and write with Carol King. I'm about to walk in and write with Bon Jovi. I'm about to walk in and write with Ringo. And then you have to leave that and walk in and go, Hey dude, you know, give me a water, give me a pencil and let's write a song. What do you got? I don't know. What do you got? I don't know. What do you got? And then it's just, you try to treat it normal. And then when you leave the room and you listen to your song, your demo, the, the work tape, and you're hearing the two of you and you're going, that's a beetle banging on his leg while I'm singing the demo. You know, that's a beetle going, you know, chiming in with a harmony in the chorus. And you jump up and down again until the next time when you get it out of your system and then you go in and you work. But I know you can't ever forget. We're so lucky to get to hang out and work with our heroes. And he's just not only lovely, but one of the funniest guys I've ever, ever worked with. One of the songs that you wrote when you were performing in Gainesville, Georgia, I've always liked this song. I can remember, I think I was, I was like in late grade school when what's in it for me came up. And <laughs> every time I heard the song, it was like my ears just kind of tuned into it again. A very interesting song. Tell us about that song. Okay, John Gerard was an unbelievably interesting character. He was, he had diabetes and had lost his sight. But you'd always see him walking up and down the streets of Nashville, going from publishing house, writing appointment to this, to that, to restaurants, just with his cane, and he just knew his way around. And he repelled down the side of buildings. He just had... He just had to prove that he could do whatever he felt like doing and that diabetes wasn't going to slow him down right up until the point where it actually took his life. But writing with him was always great. It was just a regular writing appointment. You know, we just, we, we'd, uh, you know, we'd laugh, great ideas. He was a great writer, great lyric guy. And another Beatle connection. We went in that day and I had seen help the night before on something. And I said, I want to write a country song that has a sitar in it, that has an Indian influence. Let's write something that, that we would put a sitar on. So I detuned the guitar with the top and the high string down to D to give it that drone. And I started to come up with that. that trying to be like a sitar. And you know, he loved that. And we, he had the idea for the title. Uh, you know, just the idea of the flip phrase, you know, what's in it for me? How do you turn that into a love song? So we did that and, and we wrote the song and, and I took it into demo. And, and there's a part in the bridge where there's these holes where the drums play. And I just remember in the demo session, I think it was Harry Stinson on the drums. And it got to that part and he filled in with the drums. And I just stopped the band and said, no, no, Harry, in this part here, you got to be Keith Moon, you got to play drums like you're like the acid just kicked in. And it took about three takes. I kept going more, more. I said, yeah, until finally, when you listen to that demo and they pretty much, they kind of copied a little more tame version, but he just, you know, it goes, uh, am, you know, am I a fool? And it's just, it's, it's really fun. And, you know, that was that song. We just loved that song. And, and, John Barry did too, and cut it, and it was a big hit. It's such a cool song. I love that song. We never did put the sitar on it. 
You mentioned a moment ago Carol King, and I was listening to a live recording of you two together, and I thought it really came out great. What does she like to work with? You know, once again, writing, very intimidating. You know, and, and the funny thing is, sometimes you have to remind people like her to do the stuff that makes them distinctive, that that brought them to the ball. You know, like with Carol, she in a lot of her songs, she has these chords that when we play together, we always refer to them as C over K because there are certain certain bass against the certain certain right hand against the left hand that is so just as soon as you play it you go oh that's in about every carol king song and we call it a c over k chord and you know sometimes when you're writing you'll go through the whole song and you go we've never put that chord in are you afraid of it she goes well i don't want to be you know repetitive and it's not repetitive it's it's what you know gives you it's like right you know it's like if John and Paul didn't want to write any songs that went in it. You know, <laughs> how are they going to know it's you? And so that's really fun. And I toured the world with her touring and, you know, she's a great friend and she's very nurturing. And I remember it was drizzling out. We were playing red rocks out in Colorado. And we were just about to go out and do a sound check. And she said, you should have a sweater. I said, no, I'll be fine. She goes, hold on. She runs back to her dressing room, gets one of her sweaters, comes out, puts it out, gives it to me, makes me put it on so I would have a sweater during sound check. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty sweet. Is there anyone on your list that has not yet recorded a Gary Burr song that you've always dreamed of? Um, you know, I've had some near misses. I actually wrote a song with Mark Hudson and Timothy B. Schmidt that would have been an amazing Eagle song, and they were looking for songs for the uh, Eden album. We thought we had it, and I thought I was going to get an Eagles cut. And Henley put the kibosh on it. And I wrote with Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, and I thought, you know, I thought we wrote something great and that I might have gotten a Aerosmith cut, but that didn't work. You know, things like that. There's really, I've been so, so lucky in that regard that there's really nobody out there where I'm. I don't have any right to kick myself going, how come I didn't get them? Uh, you know, I mean, everybody out there, I, I would have loved to have a cut just to hear what they would do with something that came out of my brain. But, you know, I've had some near misses that that would have been pretty awesome. But, you know, that's half the fun. What is the best thing about being Gary Burr? The best thing about being Gary Burr at this point in my life is... I have worked hard enough and gotten myself into a position where I can say no. And saying no is the greatest luxury of all. It's the greatest payback for time well spent in the trenches to be able to just go when somebody says, we really need you to do this. And you can just say, no, you don't have to. You're not always wondering if you're turning down something that's going to be this or that or for whatever reason. It just gives you the luxury to be able to say no sometimes. Hmm. I always like to let the guest at the end just have an open forum. Just take the microphone. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? To anyone or to aspiring songwriters or a combination of all, 
all of the above. You know what? I would, I mean, on one hand, I could get into the whole rant about, about the new world that we end with, you know, just don't, don't forget that at the bottom of the food chain of everything wonderful, every great memory you have that has a song attached to it. I don't care if it's Christmas morning when you're hearing chestnuts roasting on an open fire or whether you're firing up a blunt listening to Bob Marley, <laughs> whatever your memory is of, of some moment in time where you hear a song and it brings you back to that memory, the integral part of that memory is a song. And when you peel down the onion to find the origin of what is one of the main things that makes that memory a memory, it's a guy or a girl in a room with a piece of paper writing a song. And these days with the computers and the, the Spotify's and the iTunes and streaming where you're not buying records anymore, you're just listening to them. So writers don't get paid. I can't tell you how often these days, way too often I'm hopping in an Uber and the Uber driver has had a number one song, hmm. but he can no longer make a living. Just, you know, whenever you hear about that argument, when you're thinking of choosing a side, think of Christmas morning, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and what that morning would have been like if that songwriter couldn't make enough money to have ever written that song. If that no longer is a viable, if that back then, if songwriting was not a viable profession, then you would have been sitting there in silence or listening to, uh, you know, Beethoven, you know, it's a crazy world, but songwriting is a real blessing. And I just want people to keep appreciating the fact that it's a blank sheet of paper and a moment of somebody going, what do you got? I don't know. What do you got for every song you can ever think of? I don't care if it's Bohemian Rhapsody, she loves you or two out of three, Ain't Bad by Jim Steinman. It all started with, I don't know, what do you think? Now, I would say this if I was still an electrician. Out of everybody in the chain, they should get the most money because the guy that owns the record company that's getting the big seven-figure salary, he'd be selling Beethoven if it weren't for that guy going, I don't know, what do you got? I want everyone out there to check out GaryBurr.com. Burr is with two R's. There's everything there from tour dates to music, anything you could possibly want to know. It's all there. GaryBurr.com. I also have a songwriting series on the internet. If you go to WriteSongsGood.com, you can check out. I got three videos on there about how to be a better songwriter. WriteSongsGood.com. That's right. It's trying to be funny. How'd I do? <laughs> well, I have to say, this has been a very entertaining, very thought-provoking interview. I'm glad, Paul. It's been great. Certainly fabulous questions. Well done. Thank you very much. I appreciate it a lot. Okay. I will talk to you again soon. All right, sir. Till next time. Thank you, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.